And pretty much from the 1890s, of course, it developed through the 19-teens, the 1920s. The, the law was always developing. But the general principle that there should not be great concentrations of power outside of government that could be bad for government or bad for the people. That just wasn't, it was seen as a bad thing and that the government would naturally have to step in. And of course, these decades were some of the most successful and most economically prosperous in U.S. history. Hello, and welcome to the More Freedom Foundation podcast. I am Murray. I am in charge of everything podcasty. And I am with Robert Morris, who's in charge of everything politically. How are you this week? Oh, I'm I'm del- delightful, Rory. How are things with you? Uh, things are okay. They could be better. But I hear you're off on a bit of a holiday. Is that true? I am. I'm going skiing in Utah for the first time in a decade. I'm uh, very excited. When's the last time you skied? Or has it been a decade since you skied? It has been more than a decade. I think I, I went skiing in Georgia, uh, which is a fascinating uh, thing. Uh, Georgia, not the state, but Georgia, the country. Oh. Um, very good skiing and very affordable uh, from the U.S. Uh, US perspective. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I skied a lot as a, as a kid, really loved it, um, and then didn't for, I mean, I've really only gone two or three times uh, in my adult life. Uh, so the last time I went skiing, I guess the time before last I went skiing, it had been a decade since the last time I had skied. And between 1998 and 2008, um, the technology of skiing had changed entirely. And I'm, I'm interested to see uh, how much further the technology of uh, skiing has changed an additional 16 years later when I get out to Utah. Apparently, everybody wears helmets now, which oh, okay. is interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, even in 2008, it, people were looking at me funny because I wouldn't wear a helmet. Um, and now I think being middle-aged and much more safety conscious, I'm going to wear a helmet when I ski for the first time in my life, which will be a strange... And it's also frowned upon to be drunk on the slopes as well. Oh, that's a pity. <laughs> but, you know, luckily, uh, luckily I've been sober for quite some time, so that won't be as much of a... Uh, You're a changed as much of a man, chore. but would, would you like to talk about an industry you'd like to get sober? <laughs> Very well done. Very well done. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I'd like to continue our conversation about big tech. Uh, last week, we talked about the internet and how it's essentially U.S. empire uh, and how important it is. And despite the claims of, I believe, actually Mark Zuckerberg, the big technology companies that seem to have swallowed the internet, uh, these are predominantly U.S. companies, uh, almost exclusively U.S. companies, uh, I believe Zuckerberg has claimed that you know they're 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 now important to national security. These companies, uh, and I, I would actually like to argue against that somewhat strenuously, and add uh, my not particularly expert, uh, but but pretty convinced view that these technology companies uh, should be broken up. And I hope that's what we'll be discussing uh, today. So, a company that started off by saying that. Um... Murdoch owns our rivals who should come to us because we don't spy on you is now saying, please don't shut us down. We are vital for U.S. security. Uh, I, I think that I think that is a uh, I think that is one of the many arguments that uh, Meta, uh, formerly known as Facebook, uh, is making in a series of ongoing uh, court cases. Uh, unfortunately, due to uh, my lack of tolerance for tedium, I have not dived into either of the ongoing uh, proceedings uh, against uh, Google or Facebook. Uh, but I think both of those exist, whether from the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice or the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, so there are details about uh, legality that we will not be getting into in this podcast. But as the two of us have used the internet uh, over uh, the past two decades, uh, as with most anybody else who's listening to this, I think we're all kind of experts uh, on this problem, and uh, we should we should talk more about it, uh, which is what we'll be doing today. So on this episode, uh, we'll be using a it's a technical term, but it's usually a swear word that I would uh, remove. Mm-hmm. But on this occasion, I will because an academic who has uh, attended many universities but never. Um, got a degree from any of them, came up with a term, which is de-shittification. No, it's in N-shittification. N-shittification, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, if it were de-shittification, things would be getting better. It is yes. N-shittification, things are getting worse. Mm-hmm. And so I believe I think it in is... in short, 
it starts off lovely because they want users. Users are really what they want. The, what the product is doesn't really matter, so they make it really attractive. And then once they get a certain level, it's like, right, how can we squeeze out of them? We'll add in ads. And then what's interesting is then they make it very attractive to businesses. And then they get to a certain level where they start to screw the businesses. So then kind of nobody's happy. And then at one point it can all just collapse. <laughs> uh, and I think it, it it seems, and I think anybody who uses the internet uh, can see that uh, we're, we're reaching pretty deep or pretty dire level of enshittification on all of these uh, platforms. Um, the argument this is, of... This is a term from Corey Doctorow. Corey Doctorow. Yes, who's written a book. He's written a lot of books on this subject. Mm-hmm. And most what's recently, the most recent one that you've read? What leapt out at me and sort of put me on this internet... Uh, a kick uh, was The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation by Cory Doctorow. Doctorow has written a lot of great science fiction, but he's also deeply engaged with internet governance and is sort of a public commentator beyond that. He does these amazing Twitter threads. Actually, I guess I wonder if he, he, he strikes me as someone who might have abandoned uh, Twitter. But he also does uh, great uh, talks as well. That is the terminal phase of enshittification, the phase when the platform becomes a pile of shit. And that phase is usually accomplished by panic, which in tech circles we call pivoting. Yeah, um, but he just these, these really extensive Twitter threads, and he has more and more been dealing with the concept of monopoly. And I think that is, that is what we're looking at uh, with big tech. Uh, these big, big technology companies desperately don't want you to look at them as monopolies, uh, but the, it's pretty undeniable that that's, that's what we're seeing here. There is a tremendous, the internet has provided a tremendous opportunity, uh, tremendous opportunities for wealth creation. And what we've seen is that, you know, really four or five uh, American companies have sort of divvied up those opportunities for profit making. They've kind of, in some cases explicitly, in some cases a little more quietly, kind of divvied things up and kind of sort of agreed to compete to it enough of a degree that we can tell the Department of Justice there is competition, but not enough of a degree to actually endanger any of these monopoly areas that each of these companies focus on. Um, I mean, famously, uh, the Google essentially pays Apple a annual bribe to the tune of tens of billions of dollars to not develop a search function. That's incredible. Which is, yeah, it, it, uh, I, I'm not so great with the accounting, but I've seen tweets talking about how actually most of Apple's profit every year can be accounted for by the fact uh, of, a, of a, by, accounted for by a bribe from Google. It's to essentially the, well, what Google's paying for, quite legally, is for Google to be the default search on Apple. Apple happily takes that money. And uh, but it, it, it's I think it's fairly easy to see how that could be an anti-competitive behavior there. Mm -hmm. um, the fact because that, uh, what if Apple accidentally made an incredibly useful search engine, which would completely destroy uh, Google's uh, most important uh, property? And I think we I mean, occasionally they do compete. Occasionally things do come up. Um, I think over the past number of years, not too familiar with the details, Apple did make a privacy change that was very damaging uh, to Facebook. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not, it's, I'm not claiming that these com companies are truly, you know, working hand in glove as one entity, but they're close enough to it that it is a danger to really any other business and any other consumer operating in the world economy. One thing Corey points out is quite often these companies don't innovate anymore. He says, basically, Google's come up with three things. The uh, Originally, the, the search engine. They've made an mm -hmm. okay um, web browser. And mm -hmm. uh, Gmail's pretty good. And then after that, they pretty much just bought everything. Yep, even Android. Something like um, Apple buys something like, is it 90 companies a year? It's just an outstanding wow. amount. Yeah. But there could be just small companies that are like half a million here and there that nobody really knows about that hire like 20 people. Well, and, and what it does is it, it slows down natural innovation. It's the, you buy these companies and sometimes 
Meta's been extraordinarily lucky with this. Uh, both WhatsApp and Instagram, which are Facebook companies mm-hmm. uh, that were purchased by them, um, both of those are still world-recognized brands, uh, provide tremendously useful and I services. Think Instagram's been able to pivot to be like a uh, TikTok clone at this point. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, no question. Um, but uh, a lot of those dozens of companies that these uh, larger companies are buying every year are being purchased to be shut down because they provide some kind of service that might be a threat to the larger companies. So they, they you know, they don't, they, I think it would prompt more scrutiny, especially uh, with the more dedicated uh, antitrust uh, competition authorities that have been put in place by the Biden administration um, to just straightforwardly buy these companies uh, hold their patents and fire everybody. So that's something he pointed out that it started with Carter with a little bit of um, relaxation and then obviously with Reagan it was kind of like the companies were given a, a significant amount more power and it feels like Biden's the first one to stop that trend. Yeah. Um, so so just the history of antitrust is very interesting and there seems to be a lot of consensus on sort of how it goes. So antitrust is a synonym for competition law. Uh, in uh, trying the to European stop Union. a monopoly, because quite often these companies only become profitable when they're monopoly. Like when I talked about earlier, the, so they wait for users. It's almost as if they wait until they have like, well, the competition's now dead. Now we can turn the vice and really make the money. Exactly. The competition in Europe, they call it competition law. Uh, in in the United States, because it dates back to the 1890s, where the relevant form of uh, monopoly. What they used to create monopolies uh, was the legal form of a trust. So it's called antitrust, uh, just as a historical artifact in the United States. So some dynamics of antitrust, uh, you know, e- e- it can seem like it's oh, it's a relatively new thing, like a progressive era thing, for uh, governments to be this interested in corporations and whatnot, and, and that would be inaccurate because. Actually, the freedom with which corporations are created is actually a late 19th century thing. So really within 20 years of corporations being uh, unified, uh, so it used to be that every corporation that was founded, this is in British and US history up until the mid 19th century, almost every corporation that was founded had to be founded through some kind of act of government. Um, so there was not some magical time before antitrust when any corporate form was allowed. In fact, corporate forms used to be much more rigorously controlled, like the, the British East India Company, these, these famous old trading companies, had individual charters from government. That's how you created a corporation until about, I think it's midway, even it's in the second half, I believe, of the 19th century when you had you began to have uniform procedures for forming corporations. And very quickly, within a decade or two, people realized that, oh, wow, these corporations, there's a reason why we, we kept a, 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 a tight cap on these beforehand, because they can become centers of immense power. Um, so by the 1880s, 1890s, you started, I think, the Sherman Antitrust Act. I think it's 1890 sticks in my head. And then there's the Clayton Act. And this is just in the U.S. Uh, context. I believe the U.K. and all European countries and now all countries in the world have similar legal architectures, but I'm most familiar with the United States. So very quickly after the whole idea of an independently formed corporation became common, um, it became acknowledged that the, in certain circumstances, the government would have to step back in to break up these, con- these co- concentrations of power. And pretty much from the 1890s, of course, it developed through the 19-teens, the 1920s, the, the law was always developing, but the general principle that there should not be great concentrations of power outside of government that could be bad for government or bad for the people. That just wasn't, it was seen as a bad thing and that the government would naturally have to step in. And of course, these decades were some of the most successful and most economically prosperous in US history. Starting in the 1970s, uh, linked pretty tightly to a character named Robert Bork, who actually became famous in a different context. He was blocked 
famously by a Democratic Congress from being put on the Supreme Court of the United States. And he's that sort of controversy from the 1980s is seen as sort of a starting point of our modern, very contentious Supreme Court politics. But aside from that, uh, Robert Bork made his legal career by coming up with a whole new concept of antitrust. And it wasn't that the concentration of power was a problem. What really mattered was consumer welfare. So as long as the prices that the consumer were getting were cheaper, it didn't really matter how consolidated a company was. And really, monopolies weren't necessarily a problem as long as that monopoly could prove that the consumer wasn't being harmed. At the time, a number of people were like, well, this, this seems, that doesn't sound right to me. But it was an attractive enough idea. The general tenor of the times, because of the Vietnam War, because of Watergate, uh, because of the oil crisis, were quite anti-government. It took the tenor of the times and the fact this was so transparently, obviously, from the beginning, good for rich people and the people who own companies and want to create monopolies, um, it became the law of the land. Uh, so really from the 1970s until the Biden administration, uh, the traditional suspicion of concentrated corporate power that was uh, just uh, one of the basics of the common law experience, the civil law experience, just legal history, uh, was completely thrown out. And generations of lawyers came up from the 70s until the Biden administration that just sort of assumed that, oh, government doesn't really have a role in this. You know, if there's something really, really egregious. So it, the, it's gotten to the point where uh, circa 2019, the set of circumstances where the government was going to have any kind of um, say on uh, what a company might do was was just ludicrously tiny. There was just nothing. There was no set of circumstances where it was appropriate. Have you had uh, legal friends complain about the Biden administration that, um, A, have they brought in anything to, you know, stop this from happening? And B, or they, did they just assume that more legal action would come in to make it easier for companies to monopolize? Well, I don't, I don't have a uh, ton of legal friends who are in antitrust or competition law. Largely because 40 years, for 40 years, they just didn't have to. Okay. Like there just wasn't, you know, the, the you know, you, 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 to have a, to need an antitrust lawyer, you need to have a government that wants to- Not trust companies? <laughs> uh, do antitrust. Yeah. <laughs> do antitrust. And that is not, uh, not something that has been the case. What we have seen is stunning uh, complaints by the Wall Street Journal, by the Federalist Society, by the whole larger- pro-business legal community and uh, political community in the United States has been outraged by the fact that the Biden administration, through figures like Lena Khan, uh, Tim Wu, I think he's no longer of the administration, but it was, it was a name that sticks with me. I think Jonathan Cantor, the DOJ, but primarily Lena Khan at the Federal Trade Commission have been just taking baby steps towards they call it a new, they've been calling it hipster antitrust or a new approach uh, to antitrust, where really it's it's an old approach to antitrust. It's uh, a finally beginning to actually enforce the laws that are on the books. And I think that that's, I think that's a very good thing. So on, on the pre-2019 standard, it's worth emphasizing. So on the consumer welfare standard, for 20 years, big tech companies have managed to avoid any kind of antitrust scrutiny. That's not true. There there have been, there absolutely have been proceedings. Well, there, I, I'm thinking of what happened with Microsoft and Apple. Wasn't there a point where Apple was nearly going to go under, but they kind of had to at least have some competition, so Microsoft had to help them at a stage? Um, I wouldn't go quite that far. Famously, in the 90s, U.S. government did go after Microsoft because the operating system monopoly that it had was so egregious. And I think there is little question. So yeah, what you're saying is correct. So if if the US government had not gone against Microsoft, uh, there were threats to break up uh, Microsoft that did not happen, but there were limitations on what Microsoft was allowed to do. And just by, we saw this with IBM in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the, there actually ended up not being any government remedies taken against IBM 
but because of all the scrutiny, they behaved in a different fashion. So uh, Apple absolutely got some breathing room out of this. If it weren't for that U.S. case against Microsoft, again, this was in the era in the 1990s when there really wasn't anything that a that a that a uh, company could do wrong. But Microsoft's behavior in the 1990s was so egregious. They were so clearly trying, you know, the way that they killed Netscape, which was a uh, one of the first web browsers, um, like was so egregious that the government felt that it had to step in. But I mean, broadly, more broadly, these companies have gotten to positions of obscene wealth and power. I think we mentioned last time that that, uh, four of these companies together uh, now have a larger stock market valuation than the entire Japanese economy. Uh, I think at one point the entire European, like it seems, that seems so high, but it- Has this been part of sort of American power in the sense that if we let these companies completely unloose, unregulated, they're able to just buy all the world's other companies because quite often when they talk about oh European Union doesn't have startups it's like it does but then a big American comes along and buys them it's like it feels like anytime little companies try to grow around the world America just grabs them all up so has this been part of letting them run rampant to completely destroy the world's ability in the tech sector I don't think this was conscious on the part of the US government but I definitely think that's that's the implicit case that Mark Zuckerberg is is saying now is making now that you know saying that oh well it's a, it's national security that that these companies be allowed to do what they want and be allowed to run the world's internet which I do is actually something I was curious about and sort of wondered about for a while and have now arrived at the point that I know that I, I do not buy that I think that is I think that's quite ridiculous there's just one point I want to make so the consumer welfare standard if a consumer is not losing money because of this. Um, it's been very easy for tech companies to get away under that standard because well, I suppose Apple uh, and Amazon and uh, Microsoft do sell things, but Google, Facebook really don't that often. So a lot of these these companies aren't actually charging consumers anything. They can argue that they're providing this free benefit. So under that that pre Biden administration nineteen uh, seventies to twenty nineteen standard. Um, the tech companies just sort of get off scot-free. But isn't it also easier to blame on external factors? Because I've heard, um, you know, with the high inflation, a lot of companies are saying, oh, we can't pay you more because if we give you more, then things will go up even higher. But if you looked at it, it was basically uh, companies just being greedy during times of crisis was causing most of the inflation and wages going up was a smaller part. So it seems that they're able to just go, oh yeah, oil's gone up, so we have to charge you more. Yeah, I mean, and inflation. there's not really any scrutiny scrutiny of it. There's not enough scrutiny of any company uh, operating uh, at this point, and I think that's been a real. There are, as I've made very clear on this podcast, there are a lot of reasons why I really do not like Joe Biden and the Biden administration. But there have been really, really important baby steps towards real accountability uh, for corporations in the business world uh, that we have not seen since the 1970s restoring the funding to the U.S. tax authorities that uh, has been cut, um, murderously cut over the past 15 years. Lena Khan at the Federal Trade Commission just beginning to enforce some of these laws. They could be using this moment to try to protect their moats and protect their monopolies rather than allow the opportunity that this technology presents to fully flourish. Just uh, step back a moment. I just want to talk about like, um, I think I've used this analogy before on the podcast, but I, I think it's worth repeating. I, th- I read a lot of science fiction, Murray. Like I, I read a lot of, and I have done for years, you know, first comic books. And then uh, I think I really, I got really into science fiction in, in my 20s. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's part of why I'm still single in my 40s. But anyway, um, it was a, uh, uh, and it's always been a fascination for me. And when I started reading these, these, these science fiction, you know, engaging in these sort of sci-fi dystopias and futures or what have you, there was always this idea that corporations would take over the world. Like the corporations were going to replace the nation states. And this is, I think people talked about this a lot in the 80s. I think this was a concern for uh, for writers of science fiction when looking at Reagan or whatnot. It's very Judge Dredd, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, very Judge Dredd. I mean, there's the ton, tons. Uh, it, it's just It's just part of the background. And it always reading this stuff in the 80s and the 90s and in the, even in the aughts, 
it all seemed kind of silly, you know, like, wait, wait. So like, so like McDonald's is going to take, is going to become a government or something or like, or, or, or like, come on, like, like, like Home Depot is going to have an army. That just sounds stupid. It doesn't seem so stupid anymore <laughs> when you look at a Google or a Facebook or a Microsoft. When you look at the way that these business titans are interacting, not just with the U.S. government, but with other governments, uh, the way that these, you know, Microsoft and Amazon were famously battling over a contract with the Pentagon. Um, I think for cloud services or something along those lines. It's like the degree of power that these companies have managed to accumulate seems a lot, makes the, makes the sci-fi dystopias of my youth seem a lot more plausible. And that's not a good feeling, Murray. That's not a situation we have to be in. Uh, and it, it's not just about the size and the amount of money that these companies have. That's unprecedented. Um, but it's just the nature of the way that life and business and the economy is evolving. Uh, so much of life, especially after the, the COVID pandemic, so much of life, uh, though it was already the case beforehand, is being mediated through these screens. And speaking of dystopia and screens, have you seen people walking about with the Apple Vision Pro yet around New York? <laughs> I have not, uh, okay. I have not, it's, in what, fact. three and a half grand you're just wearing on your face? <laughs> yeah, I, I cannot. I mean, I, I've, I've certainly seen clips, uh, and I think there's some question with a lot of these clips. Is like, are these people just, I mean, is this really people being caught in the wild wearing these things, or are they just putting on a show? Um, and I think there may be, there may be a, a fair amount of uh, show shows being put on here, but... Um, uh, but unquestionably, it is it is a, an interesting uh, development. It's been a while since uh, Apple has rolled out a new form of technology. I think the last one was the Apple Watch back in, I don't know, 2015, 2017, thereabouts. Uh, earbuds, I think, would have been the most recent one. Yes, yes. Uh, very true. Very true. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've read some reviews saying that it's actually quite impressive. Uh, I've read many other reviews saying, uh, but w what's this for again? Um, so I can't see potential, but yes, it'll need to get a bit cheaper. But I think another point Corey is bringing out that it's okay for companies to fail because the way Zuckerberg makes it out, it's like America mightn't survive if there's no Facebook <laughs> running around when, um, he's basically saying companies fall apart all the time and new ones grow. And that's just generally how life works. Like we don't need to sort of be locked into these four big tech companies for eternity. Yeah, and I think that it's a dynamic that comes up with a lot of things that we discuss. Like, none of this is inevitable. This is all a series of choices that we have made uh, related to regulation and whatnot. I spent a lot of time in my youth being quite libertarian. And I think the sort of DNA of Silicon Valley is quite libertarian. Uh, I think actually Cory Doctorow worked for uh, an institution called the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which tends to be, frankly, quite quite libertarian, and a lot of the ideology around um, maybe anarcho socialist, sometimes some would call. Mm. Um, but I'm sure it's been different things in different eras. But I, I, I have latterly become much, much more suspicious. Used to be every two or three years there'd be some legislation that the U.S. Congress would attempt, and we'd all change our avatars to be like, "Stop, SOPA, or this, that, or the other thing." Um, and I'm I'm latterly becoming a lot less, a lot more suspicious of big tech than uh, I am of the government. I think a lot of the problems that we have with government over the past forty years are the fact that you know we have so much distrust of it. And that everybody in, even most of the people in government, um, have uh, 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 contempt for uh, the potential uh, of How government. How many Americans do you think, say, within a year would have, you know, realistically, most Americans are getting more interaction with big tech than government? No, of course, on a daily basis. Uh, I mean, but I, I, I pay my taxes and obviously, like, sitting in my apartment, I am benefiting from you're safe because there's police protecting you to some extent well i i what i think a lot about uh especially is you know I, i've become latterly a little more concerned with my health it's the beauties of being in one's 40s 
is I think a lot about like, um, what is, what is, should I change my air conditioner filter? What is the, what are the materials? What is the paint in my uh, apartment made of? And all of that is influenced uh, in a positive sense uh, by government. You know, what can be sold to the consumer, um, you know, protections, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and I think that's that's one of the the weird things about tech is that because it's all so new, there isn't really that that those decades, centuries of regulatory infrastructure. Uh, I mean, New York City, okay, New York City water is deeply, deeply, deeply government controlled. Like the the glass of water that I have every day um, is carefully analyzed by a range of government institutions, federal, state, and local. Um, the, the, the infrastructure that brings it to me, uh, utilities can vary. Some of them are a little more privately organized. Some of them are a little more publicly organized, but even the privately organized ones are under the, this massive, massive. So like government sets the, 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 the playing field, the, the, the basics, but what we interact with day to day uh, is our Instagram account or our WhatsApp account or or this, that, and the other thing. And I, I think it very quickly, because of the intimacy with which we deal with a Facebook or a WhatsApp or a, or a Gmail account, it can, things that actually aren't that incontrovertible and immortal can seem like, well, this is how the internet works. The internet works as I I, 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 I try to get the likes that I want to get or I try to get the views that I want to get on YouTube. And, uh, and I, I can feel this too, like the way that I organize my business. I'm like, Jesus, well, well, you know, how much more complicated would it be if I, you know, honestly, Rory, I've had this experience. Like I was terrified when, um, Facebook started trying to compete with Google, uh, with YouTube specifically about, uh, this is probably eight years ago at this point. Facebook decided, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do this pivot to video, and I was like, oh crap, I'm, I'm, I think Facebook might, might beat YouTube, and, and then I'd have to figure out a whole new thing, and maybe that'd be it for me, you know, I just can't, can't, can't be bothered. And uh, in the event, Facebook was absolutely terrible at video, and it lied. <laughs> they were lying about their statistics. They were. Uh, there's a great uh, article uh, by Ed Zitron, a recent newsletter, where he sort of goes through. Uh, things that made made people sour on tech, and this is one of the great uh, examples of the big pivot to video that Facebook tried to convince all the media organizations to do. They lied about the statistics, and they were just abusive. They were so YouTube. YouTube's great virtue. The reason that YouTube, I am, I don't think TikTok will destroy YouTube is because YouTube is just much better to its creators than any other video platform has attempted to be. So Facebook failed miserably, and I was like, oh, well, thank God. I'm, I'm really glad that you know, I don't have to learn a new thing. Two, three years ago, uh, well, I guess probably five years ago at this point, but uh, I became more aware of it two or three years ago, uh, TikTok actually provided a better service than YouTube did. That honestly came at a point in my YouTube career where I was like, well, I guess I'm about done. Um, I, you know, I'd had a certain level of viewership and that level of viewership had dissipated entirely over the course of three or four very depressing years. I guess I'm done. Might as well try uploading on this TikTok thing for a month or two. And basically that diversity that I had been so afraid of, that new, that new platform, new way of doing things actually completely resuscitated my, both my practice, my business practices on YouTube and my YouTube channel and YouTube viewership. So actually, the, this thing that I was so afraid of, a different way yeah, of doing things, of delivering services or whatnot, was tremendously to my benefit because I had been eviscerated by, and this is another example of why it's bad to have one version of all of these services, is that YouTube had decided that for whatever reason that my content was disfavored uh, for a period of months or years. Um, I would argue because I talk about U.S. foreign policy in a critical way, but I have no proof of that. I was I was basically done until another video service came along and rejuvenated my um, my viewership base. But it's also um, incredible then, when there's been so little competition because it's it's incredibly expensive to host video. Is is, is, is the gist? So you have to yeah. be a massive company. I remember seeing yep. a thing about like if a Twitch stream. You know, if it's eight hours long and it has a lot of viewers, it can be something like twenty thousand dollars just for one Twitch stream. 
Like mm -hmm. video is incredibly expensive. And just to see how much they have, all of these platforms have changed recently. Like how mm -hmm. much uh, YouTube is now pushing shorts is incredible. And it's nice to see. I know sometimes you, uh, you get that thing where you get, is it the death scroll? You feel like you can be just trapped there going mm -hmm. to the next video. But for sure, I feel like other ones are able to implement it better. YouTube seems to be a bit more like, here's the people you like. We'll just give you them again. Here's YouTubers you like. We'll give you them again. It's not quite as, oh, I think the worst has to be X's one. What is it? Twitter? It just seems Wait, to be like. Twitter has a video thing now? Yeah. If you watch a video on Twitter and then you swipe up, it'll. But the problem is it can just be completely unexpected. It's like, oh, I watched a fairly mediocre video and now if someone's dying, I'm like, oh my God, they need to sort themselves out. Um, <laughs> but it's great to, just to see, it feels like a breath of fresh air that you haven't really gotten in a long time. Yeah, it, it's just, it's the same. Yeah, the, somebody comes up with something new and then all of these services copy it and it, it just gets samey. And really TikTok was the first... Uh, platform to come up with something new and like with the full force. Well, yeah, it was Vine and then Musically and then TikTok. <laughs> well, yeah, but it was. It, well, it wasn't. It, Vine was purchased by Twitter, I thought, and killed. Was was what happened to Vine? I thought. And then, it, yeah, and then Musically yeah. came along and became yeah. what became we know TikTok. today. But that's the thing is like you had tremendous support. Uh, I, I don't know if this is documented, but I think most assumed tremendous support from the Chinese government. Um, the cataclysmically stupid and somewhat monopolistic business decision of Twitter to take Vine, which was, I don't know if everyone would remember this, but it was a, it was a very popular. Seven seconds, wasn't it? It wasn't quite as flexible as, you know, um, TikTok would be today. But it was a very popular short video format that, uh, I think, I suppose Twitter killed probably because it was too expensive even to do seven, seven second videos. And of course, to Twitter's great regret, because then TikTok was able to take an audience that already existed for a thing and had massive uh, Chinese government support, presumably, and turned it into a turned it into a whole thing. But yeah, but TikTok is essentially Vine, which is like, what, a 10-year-old 10-year-old technology? Yeah, yeah, 2012. When, yeah, when you're dealing with these behemoths, these technology behemoths, it is so hard to get anything to break through in terms of innovation. Google does a thing where it'll buy a company, do it for a while, and to, uh, you know, you or me, it'll be making, like, say, 100 million a year, and you'd be like, oh, my mm -hmm. God, that's incredible. And Google's like, nah, it didn't quite become a uh, I have on my wrist a Fitbit, which I loved historically, but now, after having one Fitbit for two years, I'm now on my third Fitbit in six months because they're crap now. They just don't work well, and they break easily. That's because Google bought Fitbit. Um, and doesn't care about it much. Um, and it's a real, uh, yeah, it's, it's not good out here. And that's, you know, technically, you know, it's, you can't say that consumers are worse off. Um, and under the new interpretation, Robert Bork's interpretation of competition law from the 1970s, if you can't say for sure, like with money, like they're paying more higher prices, but it's then also it's not a problem. hard because you're talking about a product there, but they'll just go, well, this product's got slightly better things. So theoretically, it's a good value. But a very good example would be the likes of Apple. Like you can't fix Apple products, essentially. Like if you tried to expand your RAM or put a new um, hard drive into your laptop or your Macintosh laptop, it's you can't. So it's hard to really justify them making it cheaper. Apple's by far the worst. Like this isn't, you know, onions that we can say, well, last year they were cheaper, they were worse, and we all understand what onions are. Like they'll constantly go, oh, well, this is slightly different and that's slightly different. But I think one big way to fix a lot of this would be interoperability, which yes. would mean if a lot of those things say, let's say for argument's sake, Google Home is cancelled. A lot of those features could then be picked up or utilized by other apps or other companies. Other services, yeah. A lot of those basic features would be universal. Like a, a something he talks about is quite often computers want to talk to each other because they're essentially all running similar uh, things that can work with each other. It's just copyright that's stopping it. It's not a technical thing. It's not like the, this the programmers are pulling their hair out saying we can't make these talk to each other. It's very easy to make them talk, but it's generally um, 
what is it, intellectual property stopping a lot of these things working together? Absolutely. Uh, Cory Doctorow talks about this at great length and very persuasively in, in his book, just that how interoperability, uh, as you've said, can be is one potential answer is to simply breaking up these companies. So simply, you know, you wouldn't even have to break them up. You could simply say that uh, declare an end to walled gardens. Well, you, you said earlier on uh, something I think that's that, that's very important is just the complexity of these items that are being sold. It's not an onion. It's not like you can say like, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, Jefferson's uh, onion company versus Hamilton's onion company. And we got to make sure that there's enough competition. It's not. These are infinitely more complex items. And this is why you actually need regulators who are willing to be more vigorous. Um, and we've gotten the exact opposite over and the I'd past like 40 years. And I'd like to hope that I, we still get it. You know, when you see like Congress interviewing people and they ask them incredibly embarrassing questions, like wasn't like the head of TikTok or uh, yeah, TikTok asked, does it connect to the Wi-Fi? Like <laughs> we need to have people have basic like programming understanding. Like, do you know what I mean? It just seems to be embarrassing. Like, are they deliberately putting people that have no clue out so it doesn't go through and get regulated or honestly the extent to which we hear about those embarrassing congressional questions i i I think it's i don't think it's too conspiratorial to say that yeah that's part of the that's part of the sort of uh ideological push is like oh government doesn't know freaking anything well actually like there are very there are and you could fund many more very legally and technically technologically savvy people at the Federal Trade Commission, at the Department of Justice, at a wide array of technically oriented institutions. Uh, we will always, always have, you know, uh, Jim Buck numbnuts, uh, you know, in Congress uh, uh, from, you know, upstate New York or something. Uh, who's not going to know anything about anything. But you don't, that doesn't actually matter. You know, Dimrod Numbnuts doesn't have to know how to regulate a market as long as we've got, we've provided the money for technical experts at the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and what's, what's, what's stunning about Lena Khan's tenure there uh, is a fascinating figure. She is, I think she's like 33 or something like that. Um, in 2017, as a law student, she wrote a, very well received note uh, in a in a like a, a legal journal uh, talking about antitrust and Amazon and the fact that despite the fact that everybody was getting cheaper prices through Amazon, in fact, by more historical interpretations of competition law, uh, Amazon was in fact incredibly dangerous, and that made her sort of a mini legal celebrity, if you can if you can say such a thing exists, and by some miracle. Uh, she actually ended up on the Federal Trade Commission in uh, the beginning of the Biden administration. And uh, she is showing that it's actually not that difficult to bring about positive changes here. It's the scrutiny itself brings about positive changes because there are many, many, many obviously criminal, not just like civil, you know, shouldn't be doing that, but uh, criminal things, according to traditional antitrust law, that a lot of companies have been doing. This isn't just a tech thing. I've, there, there are many books that I've not read all of, uh, but Goliath by Matt Stoller is one that I have read that talk about how our entire economy over the past 40 years has fallen into this massive system of monopoly. And just with just the barest bit of scrutiny um, from U.S. government agencies, things have been improving. There's been a lot of dumb mergers that haven't happened. Is what you're saying kind of reminds me of when they reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone? <laughs> because while we would be focused on when the wolves are able to get the deer and do a big kill, but it says what happens is because the wolves are just there, it completely changes the deer's behavior. Are you saying if we have the odd, you know, big law come through and the odd bit of scrutiny, it'll cause all the companies to panic and behave better? Yep. Well, by the, the to to extend your analogy, like when they introduced the wolves to, I sorry, it was Yellowstone or something yeah. like that. It didn't just change the population of deer; it actually changed the entire ecosystem and the way that the land fell, where the rivers went. 
I think that just introducing just that little bit of scrutiny, that little bit of attention, that little bit, you know, uh, a merger that, that would have... Wolves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, like a merger that wouldn't have happened. I think it is already changing the American economic ecosystem in, in very positive ways. Because one thing we have learned is a lot of these tech bros are stupid when it comes to... Um, tracing crimes and criminal things stuff was coming out about on like slack conversations ftx were basically like yeah we're committing a load of crimes can you help me commit some crimes over here and they're like oh wait i'll help you with those crimes in a, in a minute or two i'm like because everything's you know recorded a lot of this stuff can be easily tracked and show oh yeah you did have intent over here well ftx is i wouldn't really call that big tech i would call that a sort of one of the the many 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 many, many frauds um uh sort of brought about by by crypto what is what that does allude to is this this interesting dynamic that a lot of Another justification beyond national security, and isn't it great that we're here to to, to be the big American representative in the internet? Um, another uh, excuse that Meta uh, and Alphabet and all these other uh, companies would use for their bigness is to say that, well, you see, nobody else would have the resources necessary to go after criminals the way that we can. But but the thing is, and that there's some superficial plausibility to that excuse, but the thing is, like, if we didn't have these massive, too big to fail architectures, privately controlled, there wouldn't be as much scope for criminality. You know, there wouldn't be the scale of vulnerabilities that we see that are brought about by this this near near technological monoculture. But they're making it out like the FBI doesn't know how to get a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it's it, there's a lot of bad excuses to keep doing what we're doing with big tech. I, there's it, it's very politically difficult to go after these companies though, uh, because they're so ingrained in the politics and bankrolling so many campaigns. Well, yeah, absolutely, uh, but also the retirements of a whole bunch of baby boomers. You know, if you bought three shares of. Uh, Microsoft in the 1990s, those three shares of or Amazon, yeah, that, that that's that's now that's now wow. the reason you can you can afford to go on vacation in retirement um, for a lot of people in mm -hmm. the United States. So it, it's very politically uh, fraught and just another indictment of uh, how little of a social welfare state we have. When uh, it, it turns out, it's 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 Apple and Google shares. Or what we're depending on to fund the baby boomers' retirements um, makes these country. It, it, yeah, I fear that that may end up making these companies uh, uh, kind of untouchable. Because one thing about the interoperability he talks about is quite often you're trapped on a platform. Like quite often, I just kept a Facebook because there's ones from university I knew and I wanted to keep with them. But he's saying is something with the interoperability is something that Mastodon has done, which is they've basically made like a universal protocol. So Macedon can talk to Blue Sky, can talk to, um, what is it, Threads? So it means posts from all these other ones can kind of talk to each other. So you're able to get like the benefits of them all. And it means that you can move from one to the other much easily, easier. So oh. you can kind of keep a track of them all. It's a bit like RSS or email. You know how you can send, I can be on one email platform and send it to another. I know Google sort of dominated that space, but emails are kind of the closest freest thing we have on the internet at the moment so if you're able to basically take your friends with you to this new place or even have a couple of places that are able to talk to each other on a you know you know instead of having ginormal companies we're able to have just smaller ones that can work with each other and then innovate and create and come up with new stuff instead of just giants that just buy everything and crush most mm. I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, that's absolutely right. Like the the uh, the Twitter clones are sort of providing like a first test case of interoperability, and I, I think it's just it's just like there's so much more potential here, uh, so much potential and diversity, and and the 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 promise of this this incredible intellectual technological flourishing that the internet was going to provide, and I think there's a broader sense. That I think many would agree that like that for a for a time. Google and Facebook uh, were were realizing that promise. Were were providing, you know. Well, that's what they do to a point. 
and that's and, and it's but getting back to the concept of inshitification, like that's what they did so much better 15 years ago. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and now we're getting more and more crap with the good. And five years from now, if these companies are allowed to persist, it's just going to be all crap. Because even Google searches now are difficult because most people just type in like parentheses Reddit because quite often when you search a specific question, it keeps just giving you ads or just guff and things that don't go anywhere. So if you kind of sneak in Reddit, it's like someone that's already asked that question getting those answers. So it's strange that we almost have to trick the internet into helping us now. I saw a horrifying... Orwellian thing that honestly I it's so bad that I feel like I might I must have almost imagined it um which was I think I was through maybe it was maybe it was through Instagram or something I went to the Google search page and it so it wasn't the way I normally uh, went about it <laughs> you like you're like at an internet cafe or something no no it was just through I think it was through another another service on the internet or something like that and I went to a Google you know you go to Google and you can type into the search bar and you can go images or you can go, you know, just plain search or you can go news. Um, and I, I, for some, I opened a Google page and there was no news anymore. They just didn't, they didn't want you, they didn't want you to look for <laughs> no news today. Well, no, yeah. And that, that's just a, a really subtle thing that Google can do is just say that, oh yeah, we don't. Mm. And actually this is, I think, something that Facebook openly said is we're a lot less focused on news and politics in this election cycle like and and some uh you know hashtag resistance liberal types are like oh that's great you know but it's like wait a second like so one of the main communication forms of all humanity doesn't want to talk about the news anymore because perhaps the news is too critical of power sources that facebook wants to cater to that's that's kind of horrifying. And I think that's that 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 potential for abuse is just another reason why I believe these companies should be broken up. Well, thank you very much for listening. And if you'd like to help our big giant corporations stay happy, please uh, give us a five star and a thumbs up and a lovely little review. That would be great. Thank you kindly. To keep our overlords happy. Thank you very Indeed. much. And we'll catch you next time. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is Rob Law, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the US Can Do Better, and music provided by Kevin MacLeod.